Hey, I want to welcome you to the Marty McLean Podcast. This is episode eight. Today's topic is the Bible. Yeah, I'm going to talk about the good book in an evil age. That's where we find ourselves in the 21st century. We, we are going to talk about the good book, the Bible, and we're going to talk about how the Bible applies in the 21st century, why the Bible is so, so very, very important. Now, you have to understand, the Bible was written over the course of 1,500 years. It was written by over 40 different authors. It was actually written on three different continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. It was written in three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. And, you know, when you think about the people who actually wrote the Bible, you have people from a lot of different walks of life. As a matter of fact, you have, a, you have a king, you have a shepherd, you have a farmer, rabbi, historian, physician, fisherman, you even have a government worker. And all these guys were inspired by the Holy Spirit of God in the circumstances in which they found themselves, that God inspired them using their literary styles to pen the words, the thoughts, and the phrases that he wanted to communicate to humanity. And so we have the Bible from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. It talks about the creation of the heavens and the earth. It talks about the institution of marriage as established in the Garden of Eden. And in the book of Revelation, it talks about how it's all going to end, and it will end. And it talks about a judgment to come. So there's creation, there's life, and there's judgment all in the Bible. In the Bible, the most read book of all time, the most distributed book, the best-selling book of all time, it is very, very important. Matter of fact, the Bible, more than any other book, has been scrutinized. You have people who have tried to pick the Bible apart. They have taken it and tried to disprove the Bible. And what they have found out is that if you take the Bible, you can use it for archaeological research. Why? Because it's true. Because they, they initially will say stuff like, oh, you know, in the Gospel of Mark, I mean, in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 5, it talked about a pool of Bethesda there in Jerusalem. And they used to say, well, there's no pool of Bethesda there with the five porticos. And they kept on digging and digging. And eventually, guess what they found? The pool of Bethesda, just like it said in the Gospel of John. You have in the book of Acts, which is written by Luke, the historian, the only Gentile writer in all of Scripture. And he talked about Roman officials. He talked about these officials being known as a polytarch and a proconsul. And they used to say, you know, they didn't use those terminology, those words, to refer to officials during that time. And they did the archaeological research, and eventually they discovered, oh my goodness, they actually did use terms such as polytarchs and proconsuls. So the Bible actually proved to be true. So you have the Bible. It has been picked apart. People have tried to destroy it, yet it has stood the test of time. They use it for archaeological research and all the prophecies that are in the Bible. Think about how many prophecies from the Old Testament were fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, over 300 prophecies were fulfilled in the life of Jesus. Matter of fact, you go to Micah 5.2, it says he'd be born in Bethlehem. Isaiah 7.14 said it'd be a virgin birth. You think about his betrayal, his rejection, the rejection of Isaiah 53, uh, the crucifixion, Psalm 22, triumphant entry into Jerusalem, Zechariah 9.9. You can go and you can look at these verses yourselves. You, it's amazing when you look at, here's what the Old Testament prophets said would be about the Messiah. Here's what would happen. Here's how it would happen. And it was fulfilled not only in the person of Christ, but also go to the Bible and look at the fulfillment of the verses 
pertaining to the nation of Israel that is in existence today. Now, I've already done a podcast on that. You can go back and listen to it. But that's a result of fulfilled prophecy. The Bible said that Israel would be back in the land, that they would reconstitute themselves as a nation, and against all odds, Israel is back in the land. So here we have the Bible. You have prophecies. You have archaeology. The Bible has stood the test of time. It's been picked apart. It is still the most read book in the world. It's the most distributed. It is the most sold book in the world. So there must be something special. And like I said, from a biblical point of view, from a Christian point of view, uh, we believe that the Bible was inspired by God, that he inspired these writers. And we talked about the writers earlier. These writers are inspired to communicate the message that God wants to communicate to this world. And so if the Bible is that special of a book, then we need to heed what the Bible says. But unfortunately, in our day-to-day, there is a turning away from what the Bible says. As a, as a matter of fact, I've got quite a few headlines here that uh, I would like to read when it comes to how the Bible is being approached in the world today. Here are some of the headlines. Quote, Bible verse display removed from public school after Freedom from Religion Foundation objects. Another, Bible verse at Knoxville Police Headquarters to be removed after legal threat. Mayor defends decision. Another, quote, Baldwin County School Board removes Bible verse accidentally posted on Facebook. Here's another, quote, would a proposed law ban the Bible in California? Now, it not only in the United States, but also it goes across the world. Here's one from Canada. Publisher, Canadian law could label Bible as hate speech. Here's another. Finnish politician under hate crimes investigation for sharing Bible verse on Facebook. One more. Rugby chief suggests quoting Bible is hate speech. Now, that one's in Australia. So as you can see... There is a move underfoot to say that certain aspects of the Bible, when it disagrees with uh, what the culture wants or what others in the culture want, they're going to start uh, categorizing certain aspects of the Bible as hate speech. And do not think that will not happen. So here we have the Bible. I believe it's the foundation of Western civilization. I mean, you can go back and do your historical research. Look at the impact that the Bible had upon Western civilization. As a matter of fact, let me read some of the quotes from our former presidents. Here's John Quincy Adams, quote, So great is my veneration of the Bible that the earlier my children begin to read it, the more confident will be my hope that they will prove useful citizens of their country, unquote. Here's what Andrew Jackson said, quote, The Bible is the rock on which our republic rests. Here's Abraham Lincoln, Lincoln quote, I believe the Bible is the best book God has ever given to man. All the good from the Savior of the world is communicated to us through this book. Here's Harry Truman, quote, The fundamental basis of this nation's law was given to Moses on the mount. The fundamental basis of our Bill of Rights comes from the teaching we get from Exodus and St. Matthew, from Isaiah and St. Paul. I don't think we emphasize that enough these days. If we don't have the proper fundamental moral background, we will finally end up with a totalitarian government which does not believe in the right for anybody except the state, unquote. That was Harry Truman. Here's what Ronald Reagan says, quote, within the covers of the Bible are the answers for all the problems men face. 
He continued, of the many influences that have shaped the United States into a distinctive nation and people, none may be said to be more fundamental and enduring than the Bible. So why is the Bible such a, an important book? Why does it have such an influence? I'll put it just simple. Simply put, the Bible works. Now, I know that's very pragmatic, but let me, let me say this. If you take the teachings of Scripture and if you apply them in a society and society, society puts them into practice, you will have strong families and a stable society. You will have people that work hard. You will have people that are honest. You will have people that are kind, loving, because that's what the Bible teaches. And, and so, you know, what's wrong with the Bible? Well, it does talk about sin, and that's kind of where people have an issue, because when the Bible addresses, in our society today, when the Bible addresses sexual activity, then it goes contrary to what some in the culture want. And they get very upset with the Bible, and they want to start you know, looking at the Bible, certain aspects of the Bible, as, as hate speech. Now, here's, here is the book that presidents have said, hey, this has shaped our country. As a matter of fact, if you, if you go back to the founding of our country, and even our rights, you know, come from the belief that there is a creator God. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. The whole aspect of being created by God, our rights come to us from God. I mean, there is a moral under, underpinning to the foundation of this nation, which now it is being torn apart. I mean, there's no other way to put it. The foundation, the moral foundation of our nation is being torn apart. There are those who want to now put in place a new system of morality, and it's not based upon the Bible. Uh, it's based upon whatever they think. It's based upon their own thoughts. It's based upon uh, everything being permissible except for the Bible. And I hate to put it that bluntly, but that is how it comes across. Uh, you have an organization known as the American Psychological Association, the APA. I would not trust what they say. I would not trust what they say when it comes to moral issues, when it comes to sexual issues. If you see something being put out by the American Psychological Association, I would be very careful as to how I would accept it. You know, recently they came out with a, uh, a paper that said that traditional masculinity, that it was toxic. And they labeled such traditional masculine traits such as aggression and stoicism uh, as, as toxic. And, you know, when you look at how they stand on transgender issues and how they stand on the LGBTQ issues, uh, you understand that the American Psychological Association does not necessarily stand for traditional values. They do not necessarily stand for uh, there being two sexes. As a matter of fact, uh, you know, binary is no longer considered the standard. Uh, you have non, quote, non-binary people. And the American Psychological Association, they have this thing that they are pushing now. It's called the Non-Monogamy Task Force. And what they want to do is they want to normalize open relationships. They want to advocate for the inclusion of consensual non-monogamous relationships. What that means is that the definition of what we'll call marriage is no longer, no longer between two people. They want to expand that, call it marriage, domestic partnership, whatever you want to, into three or more people. 
And as a matter of fact, on July 1st, there's a city in Massachusetts, Somerville, Massachusetts, they passed a domestic partnership ordinance to include relationships between three or more adults. And one of the guys uh, from Somerville that was talking about it, one of the authorities there, he says this would allow people to say, this is my partner and this is my other partner. You know, I can't help but uh, that kind of makes me think back on the old Bob Newhart show where uh, the guy says, uh, my name's Larry, this is my brother Daryl, my other brother Daryl. And so now you can show up somewhere and say, hey, this is my spouse and this is my other spouse. You can have multiple spouses at the same time. Now, let me just say this. When the whole aspect of same-sex marriage was being pushed and, you know, people were saying, well, we just want equality. There are some of us that knew that, hey, this is not about equality. This is about the abolition of marriage. This is about taking the whole meaning out of marriage. It doesn't mean that everybody knew that, but the overall push behind it was to basically dissolve the institution of marriage. And you remember a few weeks ago we looked at the organization Black Lives Matter and that it's an, a Marxist organization, and one of their goals is basically the dissolution of the nuclear family. This is an agenda. You've got to understand that. It is a coordinated agenda. It is an attack on the family. Marriage is between one man and one woman. That's how God's made it. That's how it works in nature. You have to understand, marriage brings together a man and a woman. Men and women are different. People don't understand that as much now, but men and women are different. I wonder how well the book, uh, Men Are, are From Mars and Women Are From Venus, I wonder how well that'd be received nowadays with the intelligentsia that's out there. They would probably condemn it uh, as being sexist, as being binary and all kinds of stuff like that. But men and women are different. Marriage is for companionship, but also man, marriage is for procreation. God says, be fruitful and multiply. He brought men, he brought the man and the woman together in the garden, Adam and Eve. Be fruitful and multiply. You cannot do that with homosexual marriage, with gay marriage. And that was just the door. That was just to get things started so that now you can have marriage between multiple people. And in the course of having this marriage among multiple people, you have terminology like monogamous. You have terminology such as relational anarchy. Now think about that, relational anarchy. Basically, when you have three, four, five people, quote, married or whatever, uh, they can do in amongst themselves whatever they want to do. This is totally out of hand, and you will not have a stable society. When you start having the dissolution of marriage, the stability of the society will greatly diminish. You have to understand that. That's just how this stuff works. Because God has made it where marriage is part of what we call His common grace. Marriage is for stability of society. All across the world, God has hardwired it into our existence. It brings stability to our existence. Now, there's an attack upon the institution of marriage. It says marriage can be between two men or two women, which means there's no creation, uh, procreative aspect of marriage. And now it can be between multiple people. This has gotten totally out of hand. And I will say this, it is morally wrong. Yes, I said it, it is morally wrong. Now, here's the deal. All these people that are coming at, at this stuff from a non-biblical point of view, they want, to, they want to shame people. They want to cancel people. They want to be the moral authority, and the moral authority, the basis for their moral authority is themselves. 
Now, I would say the basis for my moral authority is not myself, but I'll say here's what Scripture says. The Bible has stood the test of time. It has stood the test of time. What these people are implementing has not stood the test of time. As a matter of fact, it will only lead to greater instability. Do the studies. I think it was Marcellus Wiley talked about how important it was to have a mom and a dad, to have the family structure, how it benefits children. It is so important that the mom and the dad, God has made men and women different. And I believe a child needs a mom and a dad. They don't need two dads and three moms. They don't need two dads. They don't need two moms. They need a mom and they need a dad. That's how things work the best. And what's so unfortunate is that people who stand for biblical morality, they are looked at as being morally wrong. That's how upside down this culture is becoming. Here's what the Bible says. And remember, the Bible is the biggest selling book of all time. It's the most distributed book of all time. It has stood the test from, from those who have wished to pick it apart. It has stood the scrutiny, the textual scrutiny. It has withstood the architectural stuff, I mean, archaeological stuff. It has withstood... Uh, the fulfillment of prophecy. And you can go to it and you can see the stability of the Bible. But here's what the Bible says in Proverbs 17, verse 15. It says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the just, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. That means when you call the righteous wicked and you call the wicked righteous, God's got a big problem with that. God's got a massive problem with that. Here's what it says in Isaiah 5, verse 20. It says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. When you call what is dark light and what is light dark, you're treading on God's territory. He's the one that determines morality. You do not. And when you call what he calls moral, when you call it evil, what God calls good, and you call what God calls evil good, you're putting yourself in a very dangerous position. That is not a good place to be. And so in our society, those who are Christians, those who hold to biblical morality, it is very, very important that we speak. It is very, very important that we share what the Bible says. It is very, very important that we will not allow ourselves to be bullied and to be quiet. We have to speak up. We have to, in, in, in kindness and in love, we say, hey, here's what the Bible says. We say that because the Bible is a very, very important book because the Bible tells us how to live. There, there's so much good stuff in the Bible, and I want to talk about some of the good stuff. I mean, if you need wisdom, say in life you are struggling and you need to have some wisdom, man, when you become a, a believer, when you become a Christian and you start reading the Bible, there are certain verses in the Bible that God speaks to us about wisdom, and we can take these verses, we can apply them to our lives, we can have comfort and we can have confidence in in our prayer life that God is actually in charge and that God will actually help us to know what to do in life. Uh, he says so in his word. Here's what it says, for instance, in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your steps. I mean, those are words of great, great comfort. Here's what it says in James chapter chapter 1. Verse 5, it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. That's a promise of wisdom. You need to know what to do in life. We have this connection with God. We, 
if you're a believer, you have uh, the Holy Spirit of God as a resident in your life. He, he lives within you through His Spirit. And we have God's Word that was inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. He inspired the writers of Scripture, the, the words that have been inspired by the Spirit of God. We read them. We have the Spirit of God within us. God speaks to our hearts, and He gives us comfort. Yes, He will give us wisdom during the times we need wisdom. Also, during times of life when you face temptation. We have verses that, that help us with temptation. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So we're told that, hey, when you're in times of temptation, there's a way of escape. You do not have to be defined by your temptation. You can have victory over your temptation. As a matter of fact, your temptation does not define who you are. You remember Jesus was tempted three times in the wilderness by Satan, and each time Jesus did what? He quoted Scripture. It is written. It has been said. So we have a promise that God's going to help us during our times of temptation. This is good stuff as far as relationships go. Uh, when you have relationships, you're dealing with people, and people don't always do right, and sometimes there can be ill will and hard feelings that can happen between spouses or, or between the closest of friends. Here's what the Bible says, for instance, in Ephesians 4.32. It says, And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. That's an incredible verse. We need to be kind, tenderhearted. We need to forgive in the same way that God has forgiven us. We need to forgive others. That helps you with your relationships. See, the Bible has good stuff in it. The Bible is a book uh, that helps with the relationships. The Bible helps with our own emotional well-being. Here's what it says, you know, about anxiety. A lot of people have anxiety nowadays. A lot of people worry. A lot of people have a lot, a lot of fear. There's a lot of fear out there. Here's what it says in Philippians 4, 6, and 7. It says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Instead of worrying, why don't you pray about it? You know, God, God hears you. God knows your situations. And God will give you peace in the midst of the trials and the difficulties of life. And I can give personal testimony of that. Let me tell you something. The words of Scripture are powerful. That's why the Bible says uh, that the Word of God is living and powerful and is sharper than any two-edged sword, that it pierces deep. I mean, the Bible pierces as deep as it's amazing. If, if you've never availed yourself of Scripture, you are totally, let me tell you something, you are totally missing out. The Bible will help you with wisdom, with relationships, with temptation. Uh, but, you know, the Bible also helps you with death. The fear of death. A lot of people live with the fear of death. Uh, you know, I, it's become painfully um, evident with how certain people have faced this whole thing about the coronavirus. There have been those that have been scared out of their wits. I, I mean, they're very fearful. Oh, I'm going to die. The reason why they're fearful is they don't know what's going to happen after they die. Now, a lot of people say, ah, oh, there's no God, and, but God's given them a conscience. And they know, they know that they violated somebody's standard. And so there's this awareness within that, you know, there just might be a God. Also, we know from creation, we look around, we see how orderly creation is. And we know, you know, it just couldn't just happen. There has to be some type of intelligence behind this design. And then when you start, like I say, talking about the Bible, stood the test of time, the archaeology, the, the fulfilled prophecy, the changed lives. 
But here's how the Bible helps us when we, th- when we think about death. Here's what Jesus himself said. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Think about that. And it continues, he says, and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Yeah, I believe it. See, we believe, according to the Bible, Jesus died on the cross for our sins. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Christ, with all our sins laid upon him, he died on the cross. He suffered death on our behalf. And he was buried, and he was resurrected from the grave on the third day. The payment for our sin debt had been made, and we have victory over sin because Christ was resurrected from the grave, and he lives. And because he lives, those who believe in him, who accept what he did on our behalf on the cross, you accept it by faith, asking for forgiveness, believing by faith that Christ died on the cross for your sins. That when we die, we just pass to a new life. That there is a place called heaven. There is eternity. And because Jesus lives, we'll live for all of eternity. Now that's for those who know him. Now there will be a, there will be a judgment to come according to the book of Revelation. I mean, it is in the Bible. The Bible talks about a, a, a judgment at the end of time where people will be judged according to their works. Now, if Christ was not judged on your behalf for your sins on the cross, then you'll be judged for your works for all of eternity. That's why the gospel is good news. That's why the message of Christianity is so important. That's why we need to keep saying, hey, here's what the Bible says. And some people think, well, the Bible says all this negative stuff. No, the Bible is very, very positive. The Bible tells you how you can know God and how you can live the life that God wants you to live. And when you really put the words of Scripture into practice, it changes your life, and it changes your life for good. That, that's, it is the good book, and it is the good book in an evil age. And I'd much rather get my instruction for life from a book like the Bible that has stood the test of time. They can tell me how to know God and how to have comfort in this life and how not to fear death. Because I know a lot of people do fear death. Now, I want to ask you, you're listening to this podcast. I don't know if you're a believer or not, but if you're not, The Bible has a message. It's a message of salvation. Yeah, there are certain things that are sinful. And the wages of sin is death. There will be a judgment for sin. But the good news is that God sent his son, Jesus, who lived a perfect life. And having never committed sin, all the sins of the world were laid upon him when he was on the cross. And on the cross, he died. He suffered the payment. He made the payment, the payment of death for our sin. He was buried. He was resurrected on the third day. That's why we celebrate Easter, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, if you've never asked him in your life, I, I want to encourage you to do so. And, and I know on this podcast, you know, I have to talk about cultural issues. And, and you know, you, I have to use some blunt language and certain things are wrong. And, and they just need to be known that wrong. And it's not going to end well when things that are wrong are promoted. And, and, but there's a better way. And following Christ is the better way. It has stood the test of time. And also, it promises you certainty of eternity in a place called heaven. And if you've not made that decision to trust Christ, I want to encourage you today to do so. Now, I want to thank you so much for being with me this week on the Marty McLean podcast. Uh, I hope you uh, have a great week coming up. And uh, I just want to ask you to do something. If if you know of someone who could benefit from this podcast, you know I'm gonna I'm gonna combine uh, life, religion, and politics. I'm gonna talk about life. I'm gonna talk about 
religion, i.e. Christianity, and I'm going to talk about politics. I'm going to bring it all together. And if you know someone who could benefit from this podcast, uh, maybe they don't have a, a good worldview, or maybe they're a millennial and they're kind of uh, getting information from all sorts of places and you want them to have some type of, uh, of biblical orientation, uh, please recommend this podcast. I'd be honored if you would do that. Also, if you would go to um, iTunes and put a review, that always helps the podcast as well. Uh, but thank you so much for, for your time, and I do hope you have a great week, and I will see you next time on the Marty McLean Podcast. <laughs>